We are launching this morning into a new series. We're calling it Resurrection Stories. I'm very excited about it. In this series, here's what we're talking about. We're talking about the power that our God has to take the dark, broken, difficult things of our world and out of them bring hope and healing and wholeness. How our great God brings comfort out of despair. Peace out of pain, confidence out of insecurity, trust out of betrayal, joy out of discouragement, life out of death. If we were a different kind of church, that's where you would sort of cheer or say amen or something. Um, Come on, my parents are here, people. Thank you. And as part of this series, each week, this is maybe my favorite part, we want to share with you a resurrection story from someone in our church family. The story of how God met someone from our church in their place of brokenness and from that began to do his restorative resurrection work. And so this week, I am thrilled to introduce you to a guy who is becoming just a dear friend to me, a man who I deeply respect and value a wonderful part of our church family please turn your attention to the screens and meet joey jenkins questioners from some family diverse background and and that questioning led me through different highs and different lows with God and different times where I was angry and bitter and other times where I was excited and passionate and I never really dated until college and so I started dating this girl named Kate and she was a newer believer and was really passionate about her faith and just the process of getting to know God with her and searching even more led to just some of these questions being answered for me and finally in college my junior year, I decided to get baptized, and I was in this really good place with God, and I was really excited about my faith. And then, I just like Jesus, when he went from baptism to being led into the wilderness, I felt like I was being led into this wilderness because three days later, my brother told me that my girlfriend had died in a car accident, who I thought was my soulmate, that I'd done a lot of growing in my faith with, and it just led me to this painful, dark, deep place of struggle and wrestling with God like I never had before. I wanted to die every day for at least a year and prayed for that every single day. Um, I just struggled with this deep pain and challenge and felt like I finally surrendered to you, God, and then you brought the most challenging circumstance I'd ever dealt with up until that point, and fortunately, I met this mentor who came into my life at that season of time who just poured into me. He was someone I could be real with and raw with and someone I could share my struggles and anger towards God with. And that process led me to this intentional decision to really wrestle with God deeply. And so I decided I wanted to go on this 40-day trip, symbolic 40 days, to go wrestle with God in the wilderness. And so I went backpacking on the Pacific Crest Trail and I'd never gone backpacking a day in my life. so. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I didn't know how to pack food in or anything like that, so I had 660 calories a day of food. Um, I didn't know it was gonna be snowing on the trail, so I didn't have a sleeping pad because I thought that was for comfort, and I'm not a comfort person, so I didn't care about that, and I didn't have a compass because I don't know why, but I just didn't have a compass. 
And so I ended up hiking through snow and sleeping in snow and getting stuck at Mount Hood for three days and getting stuck, for Jeff stuck at Jefferson Park and snow up to my waist and couldn't feel my feet and literally thought I was gonna die and just didn't know where to go with this. And, and I wanted to go out and read the Bible cover to cover once and the New Testament twice and I just wasn't connecting with God. I, I have this warrior spirit, but I felt like my warrior spirit was just beat down by a powerful God who was just trying to prove to me that he was bigger than me and stronger than me and he was in control and that just didn't feel like the message that I was wanting to hear and so I was just angry. I was angry at God, I was mad at God, I was angry at the world and bitter and, and I just gave up and so I just decided I was going to go home. And I don't know what the rest of my life looked like and if I would have gotten to go home in that moment but I am pretty confident it would have been dark and bad and so fortunately I didn't have cell phone service so I couldn't call my mom, I couldn't have her pick me up and I ended up getting stuck at Awali Lake and I ended up staying there for three nights and this guy just gave me sanctuary for three nights. He gave me a place to, a warm fireplace and a cabin and you know, a food to eat. I gained some of my weight back and I ended up deciding one night, I just had my Bible laid out in a journal and I just decided to think through every memory I could possibly remember from my three years old, my very first memory, to, to when Kate died. And the process of me going through every memory like that changed my life forever. Because in thinking of every single experience I could possibly think of and as much as you can in one night, I came to this realization that I could no longer question, and as a huge questioner, this is a really big deal. I could no longer question whether God is real, whether God is good, and whether God loves me. The evidence was too strong in my life. I saw his hand too much in my life, and I could question a whole bunch of other things still. It didn't make me not a questioner anymore, but that night I really decided that I believe God is real, I believe God is good, and I believe God loves me specifically. Joey Jenkins, God loves me, and that revolutionized my faith. God just kept showing up and kept speaking to me. Then that led to me realizing that there's one more thing that God wanted to do in my life, and that was for me to surrender Kate. And I felt like God said, just put your chips all in my corner, Joey. And if you just trust me, then I can take that burden from you. And I just, I did it and it felt like hundreds of pounds lifted from me. It felt like God just showed up and resurrected my dreams of being a married man, of having kids, of using my family to bless his kingdom, to be used for him and his purposes. And when I got back from my trip, God had been simultaneously working on my wife, who was a, my best friend for five years, the only person I'd ever consistently gone to church with, other than my family as a kid. She knew me before I even knew Kate, she knew me through Kate, she knew me after Kate, knew I didn't want to get married or have kids for three years, and in the midst of that, God was working on her, and we were just friends who didn't have those kind of feelings for each other. And then one day, she finally just decided to, to write this letter that God had been putting this on her heart. And the second I read her letter telling me that she liked me and felt like we were supposed to be together. It was like the Holy Spirit hit me harder than anything had ever hit me before. And I just knew that she was the woman I wanted to spend the rest of my life with. What I would say to the people who are in the midst of the, of the pain and the struggle and before resurrection has come in their life or before they can feel it and sense it is, 
as hard as it is, is to lean in and to absorb the pain. Because it is so easy in our culture and society to distract and to push the pain to the left or to the right and to just avoid, but to lean into it, to accept it, and to let God be the way that you absorb the pain and God be the one who brings healing and to not let it be alcohol or chocolate or TV or drugs or anything else that we fill our pain with is just lean in and lean in deeply. So I've seen God straighten what Satan twists over and over and over again in my life. And that's one of the biggest blessings I think I've seen is that God can make beauty from ashes and God can turn our deepest, darkest struggles into our biggest triumphs in life. I love that guy. He is a great, great guy. He and his wife, Stephanie, are just some just wonderful people. And isn't it good to get to know some people from our church family and hear how God has kind of worked and resurrected something in them in a time when things seemed dead and lost and hopeless. So uh, thanks, Joy, for sharing your story. This morning, we're going to get into another story. And so if you have a Bible, please pull it out and open to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. If you need to borrow one from the pew rack in front of you, you can do that. We're going to be on page 871 if you're using that Bible. Today, we are exploring one of the great resurrection stories of the Scriptures. It's a story that involves Jesus and one of his dearest friends, a guy by the name of Lazarus. And I just want to walk us through this story today. We won't hit every verse, but we will jump through it and catch the big themes of what uh, John and God are trying to tell us through this story. We're going to start in John chapter 11 in verse 1. We begin this way. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. So right away in this story we get... Uh, the news that Lazarus lives in the little town of Bethany with the, his two sisters. And as you can see from the map on the screens there, Bethany um, was kind of a suburb of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is in the southern region of the nation called Judea. And Bethany was like a little bit of a suburb just out of town. And so Jesus, who spent most of his time up north near the Sea of Galilee, when he would come south to Judea, when he would visit the city of Jerusalem, he would often stay the night with Mary and Martha and Lazarus in Bethany. So these are people who are very close with Jesus. These are people who have shared moments with him. Jesus has numerous times been a guest in their home. But the story tells us that one day, Lazarus got sick. He caught a fever. He coughed up a little blood. He felt a lump somewhere. Happens every day. And when Lazarus went to get whatever kind of medical help was available in those days, apparently the doctors just shook their heads and said, sorry, there's nothing we can really do. Happens every day. So Mary and Martha are desperate. And they know in this moment they have only one hope. Verse 3 says, the sisters sent word to Jesus. The sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. You see, they know that Jesus can heal. They'd seen him do it before. 
They'd seen him do it for total strangers. They'd seen him do it for people whose faces and names he did not even know. They'd seen him do it for immoral people. They'd seen him do it for people who did not even deserve it. And Lazarus, he was such a good man. He was such a dear friend to Jesus. They don't even have to say his name. Did you notice? Lord, the one you love is sick. But right here, the story takes a bit of a turn. It says in verse 5, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciple, Let us go back to Judea. Now, generally, if there's someone you love and something goes wrong and they tell you they urgently need you right away to come, what do you say? I'll be right there. Very good, Glenn. Perfect. On cue, just like I told you. No. (laughs) I'll be right there. That was all Glenn. I'll drop everything. Jesus waits two days. And this is not a hidden fact in this story. There's no cover-up plan happening here. In fact, John very deliberately points this out to us for this reason, so that we will wonder why. This story wants you to ask the question, why? Why in the world would Jesus wait two days? What could be more important than revealing and relieving the pain and suffering of his dearest friends. Well, if we look back at verse 4, John gives us just a little clue, just kind of a foretaste of what we might expect, because God is up to something here. God is up to something big. It says, this sickness is for God's glory. This is a story not just about Lazarus. This is a story about God, about his story, and how Lazarus's little story will fit into the larger story of Jesus. This is a story that's being orchestrated so that God's son may be glorified through it. And so Jesus decides, finally, after two days, we'll go. Now it's time to head south for Judea. And what follows is... Actually, some debate amongst Jesus' disciples about the wisdom and safety of this journey. Because the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem, the religious leaders tried to kill him. And so some of the disciples are saying, you know, maybe it's just not worth it. Maybe this trip is not the smartest move. Maybe this is not such a great call. But ironically, one of Jesus' disciples, a guy by the name of Thomas, the disciple most well known for his doubt the doubting disciple the disciple who is known for uncertainty and his need for proof and security Thomas in this moment says this let us all go that we may die with him the group's a bit uncertain the group's not sure if this is a good move but Thomas says you know come what may let's go if it means death I'm with Jesus Friends, you see, there is just something about being with Jesus. Even when things are hard, even when when things are tough, even when 
hurt and pain and suffering seem imminent, there is something about being with Jesus that even those of us who are great doubters can find great courage. Need great courage in your life these days? Spend some time with Jesus. He loves to take doubt and turn it to courage. So Jesus now makes the call, and they are all headed to Bethany. We pick up the story in verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Verse 20. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. See, by the time they get to Bethany, Lazarus is dead. Martha, who most scholars believe is the older sister, remember Martha and Mary from another story? Jesus visits their home. He's sitting there. He's teaching. He's talking about himself and God and God's kingdom come to the world. And Mary, what does she do? She sits at Jesus' feet and she just absorbs it. But where's Martha? She's in the kitchen. She's busy being the hostess with the mostest. You see, she's the older sister. She's the one in charge of these things. And we see her playing that role again here. She's the first one to come out and meet Jesus. And so she runs to him, filled with emotion. Listen again to her words. I'll read them again from the New Living Translation. Lord, if only you had been here my brother would not have died. Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. You see, that's a real poignant cry. These are deeply honest words. These are words of grief and anguish and bitterness and pain and accusation and regret. Lord, if only... And every single one of us in this room can relate to that statement because we all have got some if-onlys. Everyone in this room has a handful at least of if-onlys in our lives. If only I had not said those words. If only I'd made a wiser choice. If only I hadn't quit. If only I'd taken that risk. If only I'd told her that I loved her. If only I'd spoken the truth. If only I'd been more courageous. If only I'd stopped smoking, drinking, eating, using. If only I hadn't been so doggone insecure. If only I'd spent less time at the office. If only I'd said, please forgive me. If only I'd said, I forgive you. If only I'd gone to the doctor sooner. You see, sometimes in this world that we live in, it can sure feel like our if-onlys are the end of the story. That they have the last word. That they call the final shots. But John, he writes to us today. He offers us, us this story to say this. They do not have to. No matter what they are, no matter how badly they hurt, no matter how irredeemable they may seem, John writes today to remind us that there's always somebody we can take our if-onlys to. 
And that's exactly what Martha does. She brings her, if only, straight to the feet of Jesus. I love these words. I love the words of this vulnerable, hurting, bitter, resentful, angry, honest woman. Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Even now. Friends, those are words of faith. Those are words of hope. Those are words of trust in a God who is sovereign and has plans beyond what we can see or ever even imagine. You see, if we back up a few verses, we notice that in this passage, John specifically tells us that Lazarus has been dead for how long? Four days. Four days he's been in this tomb. Four days he's been rotting and decomposing. Why? Why such an emphasis on four days? Four days will come up again later in this story as well. John wants us to know it. This has taken four days. Why? I'll tell you why. Well, in Jesus' time, there was a well-known Jewish belief that the soul of a dead person sort of remained in the vicinity and hung around the body, hoping to re-enter it for three days. But once the fourth day came, once decomposition set in, the soul of that person departed. In other words, John is saying real clearly here, Lazarus is dead, fully dead. He is dead, dead, deader than a doornail. And so when Martha, this sister, looks up into the eyes of Jesus and says, even now, even four days later, she is declaring this, my hope is solely and fully placed in the power and plans of God. A pastor named Isaac Canellis writes about one Thanksgiving when he was growing up. Isaac's parents were very poor and they pastored a little Hispanic church in central California. He writes that sometimes they had problems even paying rent, which was about $26 a month in the projects where they lived. Thanksgiving was coming, and Isaac always watched the offering real carefully in the, in the weeks leading up to Thanksgiving. In their church, they took offering in a little tambourine. It was kind of collected in this tambourine. They would pass it around, and I'm guessing it's to symbolize the joy of giving. Like, every time you drop something in there, it would rattle a little bit, just saying, like, how blessed I am to be able to give. In fact, I'm thinking that we should trade out our very quiet bags for some joyful, it's thrilling to give here, tambourines. What do you think? Maybe, maybe not. But, you know, it sounds nice. Anyway, on this particular, in this particular season, Isaac was hoping for turkey on Thanksgiving. But he was real concerned because he knew the family had very little money. He writes this. Soon the holiday was upon us. I could hear the tambourine rattle duly as a few meager coins were offered. Why isn't God stepping in, I wondered. I asked Mama again if we would have turkey. Miho, she said, it's a real tender word, meaning my son, the Lord will provide. Has he ever let us down? Wednesday, we gathered in our church, a gutted two-bedroom house with a sign that read, 
Mission Ebenezer Assemblio de Dios. I know I butchered that, Gabby. I watched the regulars gather. Sister Maria with her color, colorful shawl draped around her shoulders. Brother Garcia, who worked in the orchards. Sister Audrey, a six foot two inch, 72 year old former B movie extra who played the violin and wore a dark fur coat. My family and a few others made up the rest of the congregation that night. I tugged on Mama's sleeve. I know there won't be enough for Thanksgiving dinner. What are we going to do? Shh, she whispered, looking serene. Don't worry, Miho. The Lord will provide. The service began. Papa spoke about the holiday as a time to give thanks. Then he said to me, Isaac, will you pick up the tithes and offerings tonight and ask the Lord to bless them? It was an honor to be asked to participate, but it was the last thing I wanted that night. I mumbled a prayer for a few coins that I knew would be all that were forthcoming. But after I said amen and raised my head, I saw the glitter of a shiny black car pulling up in front of the church. It was the longest, newest car I had ever seen. The door opened and a tall, handsome man dressed in a tuxedo stepped out. He came in and sat in the second pew. I could tell by the puzzled glances the whole congregation wondered who he was. I'm sure Mama played offertory music, but all I could hear was the thud of the coins as they dropped in the tambourine. I worked my way around the room toward the elegant stranger until finally I stood directly in front of him. A hint of a smile played around his lips. He reached into his jacket pocket, pulled out a cloth napkin and slipped it onto the tambourine. It was so heavy I had to steady it with both hands. Thank you, I croaked as I watched 20 silver dollars roll out of the napkin. Returning to the front of the church, I couldn't contain my happiness. Mama was staring at me curiously. I pointed to the tambourine and mouthed, Turkey! <laughs> she didn't look surprised, just smiled and, and launched into a rousing rendition of when the saints go marching in. The stranger slipped out before any of us could find out who it was that sent him. I didn't have to ask. I knew. The next evening, as Papa asked the blessing for our Thanksgiving, I silently added a prayer of my own. Thank you, God, for being faithful. Mama is in heaven now. I'm the pastor of Papa's church. We've grown to more than a thousand members and have a beautiful new church building three blocks from that old two-bedroom house. But I still sometimes worry about how our needs will be met. Then I hear Mama's voice whisper in my ear, Don't worry, mijo. The Lord will provide. And he does. You see, friends, this is not just a story about asking God for what we want or trying real hard to believe that everything will turn out okay. This is a story about hope and where it is found. You know, it's fascinating that Martin Luther King Jr. talked about this very thing in such a powerful way. He said, there's a tremendous difference between hope and optimism. Optimism, he said, is belief in progress. Optimism is a belief that circumstances are going to get better. Optimism fixes its eyes on what is seen and therefore is on pretty shaky ground. But hope, King said, is the conviction that there is another reality. 
that there is another kingdom and that that kingdom exists and has existed through all eternity and is doing very, very well right now, that that kingdom, God's kingdom will prevail. That, King said, is hope. And friends, one question for us today sitting in our very nice 600-seat, nothing-like-a-shelled-out-to-bedroom-house auditorium is this. What gets us through life? Is it optimism or is it hope? Is it things are going to turn out okay or is it there is an all-loving, all-powerful God at work in this world and his promise is to use all things, no matter how they turn out, for our good and his glory. Where, what are you banking your life on today? Is it optimism or is it the hope that is found in Jesus Christ? You see, friends, here is a promise Optimism at some point fails every single time. At some point in your life, in this fallen, broken world, things do not and will not turn out or get better. But even then, hope is alive because even then there is a God and that's exactly what Jesus has shown up on this scene to say. Listen to his words, verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, even though circumstances may not work out, even though optimism will utterly fail you. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. You see, as a quick aside, I just have to say, this is the kind of thing, this is the kind of statement that when you come across it, you just simply must deal with it. When a person goes around making these kinds of claims, these kinds of statements about themselves, it is no longer good enough to simply say, Jesus, what a nice guy, what a good moral teacher, no way. Jesus says, I am so much more than this. So call me a liar, call me a lunatic, or bow down and call me who I say I am, and that's the Lord of heaven and earth. Jesus starts off this statement with the words, I am. Some of you understand the history of that little phrase and its significance. In the Jewish world, this was the phrase describing Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the God of creation. And Jesus starts with these words by way of saying, that is who I am. God has shown up on the scene today. No one else in their right mind, no other credible religious leader in human history ever said anything even close to this, but Jesus says it. He claims it. He declares it. Listen to it again. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this do you believe this have you banked your life on this have you put your faith and your trust in this is your hope 
tethered to the circumstances of your life, is your hope really just optimism in disguise? Or is your hope founded on the power and plans and person of Jesus Christ? That's the big question here. And it's huge. You see, it's easy to be fuzzy on this question when life is good. When things are just cruising along and you feel like you couldn't miss if you tried, it is easy to confuse hope for optimism. But I'll tell you what, friends, when optimism dies, when your health fails, when your job goes away, when death comes knocking on the door of someone you love, it becomes very clear very quickly. Do you have hope or optimism? Do you believe this, Jesus asks. Is your hope in me? Listen to the response of this woman, this beautiful, vulnerable, bitter, honest woman. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Some of you are here this morning, and you still need to make that very simple and clear declaration in your heart. The most important decision and declaration you will ever make. And you need to make it today. And God is calling you to make it right now. You just need to say to God, I believe Jesus is the Savior, your Son. And that by his death and resurrection, I can have the hope of a right relationship with you now and forever. I'm tired of empty optimism. I want something real. I want the hope of Jesus Christ. Do not let another day, do not let another hour, do not let another minute go by without declaring that Jesus Christ is Lord and embracing the hope that God longs to offer you in your life. Some of you just need to be like Martha, Martha and say, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. You see, maybe you've been banking on opti optimism and today... Jesus says, I'm here to offer you something so much more. Hope, real hope, through faith and trust in me. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Skip down to verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Are these two sisters just a little bit alike? When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Friends, I'm afraid the word weeping is just simply not enough here. I'm afraid that it sounds a little too much like what we do in our culture, kind of like a quiet sniffling that we do privately as tears roll down our cheeks. But that is not what is going on. You know, in Jerusalem, even today, there is a place where people go to lament and cry out to God. It's a very special, significant place called the Wailing Wall. 
These are people who are wailing to God with cries of anguish and bitterness and pain and grief. And Jesus shows up on the scene and he sees this. And he sees the tomb where his friend has been laid. And then verse 35. A lot of you know this verse. It's the shortest verse in the Bible, but perhaps one of the most extraordinary. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. He just bursts into tears. He wails and grieves. And the question becomes, again, why? Why would he do that? It doesn't really make sense because he knows how this story ends. He knows Lazarus will be okay. He has some insight as to what God is up to here. But grief still just comes pouring out of him. Why? Friends, Jesus weeps because he sees our pain. In this moment, he sees our suffering. He sees the price of sin. Friends, this is a moment where we get a glimpse of how our God feels about the fallenness and brokenness of our world and what it's done to my life and yours. Some of you need to hear this today. I pray that you will. God sees your pain. He does not ignore it. He sees your struggle. He is not far off and uncaring. He is instead deeply moved in spirit and troubled. He weeps and wails over the places in your life where things are not right. You know, Scripture speaks of Jesus weeping another time as well. It's actually just about a week or so later. It's on a day that we call Palm Sunday. It's a day that we actually celebrate here this morning. And on that day, on the original Palm Sunday, Jesus rides into Jerusalem and he stands out of the city and once again he weeps. He weeps thinking about all the people who lived there, people who were just like you and me, people trapped in worry and fear and doubt. People entangled with addictions and sin. People who are confused and stubborn and chronically discontent or just too busy racing through their lives to stop and be an experience who God wants them to be. You see, on that day, like this day with Lazarus, Jesus is thinking about death. He's thinking about the price of sin and death in all of its forms and the way that sin has played out in our lives. He thinks about injustice and racism and poverty and oppression and materialism and vanity and greed, and he weeps. It breaks his heart. You see, we have so often read this story and believed that it's a story about Lazarus. Read the headings in your Bible. Lazarus raises from the dead. This is not a story about Lazarus' resurrection. This is a story, friends, about the heartbreak God feels when he sees the brokenness and pain and struggle his children are living with in this world. And this is a story John writes to foreshadow this one great truth. God has come down to do something about it. 
He will not just stand by and let things play out as they are. And so Jesus stands at the face of his dear friend's tomb, feeling the impact of sin. And he says these words, Take away the stone. But Lord, said Martha, the ultimate hostess, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. Then Jesus said this, and listen to these words. Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? In the midst of your pain, in the midst of your hurt, in the midst of your shame, brokenness, guilt, Maybe these words are for you. If you believe, you will see the glory of God. You will see how God can raise up life and hope and freedom out of the ashes of this broken world and of your broken life. You know, here's an interesting part of this story, and I would guess that maybe it's a part of your story as well. If Martha and Mary had gotten their way, if things had gone just the way they wanted them to go, then guess what? Everybody would have missed this moment. If they got to call the shots on their life and how it should play out, no one would have seen this. They would have missed Lazarus' resurrection. They would have missed watching their brother walk out of that tomb with the grave clothes still hanging off his body. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, friends, you have to just stop. You have to enter into this scene. You have to imagine the drama of this moment. All of a sudden, all of the noise just comes down. All the wailing ceases. All of these people, everybody, is just gathered around this tomb by Jesus. Absolute silence. I imagine you could hear a pin drop. The stone is rolled away. And then into the silence, Jesus speaks these words. Lazarus, come out. Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Imagine being there to see that moment. Imagine the gasps turned to cheers the awe, the wonder. Imagine the tears of pain that have now turned to tears of sheer joy. And friends, I have to say, I love the closing statement of this story. The final words that Jesus speaks in this scene. Take off the grave clothes and let him go. Friends, have you got any grave clothes today? You're walking around in this world, through this life, 
Wrapped in anguish and discouragement and loss and pain and sorrow and regret? Are you wrapped in hurt and shame and failure and fear and insecurity? If so, Jesus comes, I believe, to offer a resurrection story to you. He says, give me your hurt, give me your pain, hand me your shame, and watch what I can do with it. See what I can grow out of it. There's a resurrection Not just for me, not just for Lazarus, but for every single person who puts their hope and faith in Jesus Christ in this room. See, friends, that is the story of the gospel. That is the great news of our God. Even out of the deepest pain, even in the face of the darkest enemy, even in the midst of the greatest hurt, our God can and does produce life and growth and faith and joy and contentment and trust and peace. So don't you dare settle for shallow optimism today because the hope of Jesus Christ has been offered to you. Don't you dare walk through this life with grave clothes wrapped around your head because Jesus wants to do a resurrection in and through you. Do you believe this? Do you see your desperate need for this? Because I tell you what, friends, I see mine. I see mine. So often I settle for, man, I hope things can get better. I'll work just to make the circumstances of my life better. And God says, that's fine. You certainly should do that. But above and beyond that, more significantly than that, build your life on this fact. I offer a hope that the circumstances of this world can never tear down. And so, friends, if you're carrying around today some if-onlys, if you're wearing some grave clothes, bring them to Jesus. Lay them at his feet. Nail them to the cross. And watch God work. Watch him raise something out of those ashes. Something of life. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to come to the table. This table is a place where we... Every week, gather and declare that our hope is not just optimism, but our hope is founded in the death and resurrection of Jesus, his body offered, his blood shed on the cross for our sins that we might be raised to new life. It is the resurrection that defines and empowers every other resurrection in this entire world. And so as you come to the table today, I invite you to take the bread and take the cup But drop off and if only, drop off some grave clothes. And maybe today, maybe today is the day where you want to come to this table and say, for the first time, I believe in Jesus. If that's you, if you need to make that life-giving, hope-offering decision today, I'm going to pray right now, and I invite you to just, in your own words and in your own way, pray with me and say this to God. Father, when we come to the place, when I've come to the place of realizing that you love me, that you've saved me, that you want to offer me something so thick and rich and full, when I've come to that same place that Joey came to, that you love me, Dave Teixeira. 
changes everything. Keep bringing me back to that place, Lord. And I pray now, Lord, for my friends out here who need to make that declaration for the first time, who need to say, Jesus, I trust you, I believe in you. Your death and resurrection for me. I'm tired of banking my life on optimism that's fleeting and fading and I desperately want and need the hope that you offer and so God I invite you into my life I invite you into my heart be my Lord and King and Savior and God take all the brokenness in my life I give it to you and I ask God that you would have your will and your ways with it that you would do something in me that I cannot do on my own and God for anyone who prayed that prayer today for the first time or again after a long time God we just ask that you would surround them with your family your church you'd support them and build them up God and then as we take this this meal together as we declare together as a church that you are Lord and King we ask Jesus that you would get all the glory we thank you we love you and we pray all these things in your precious name Amen.